Our American Stories, and welcome to a very special best of. We do these now and then, and we always like to start off with funny ones. And this one comes from our regular contributor, former USA sports guy and all around sports guy, Nate Scott, who brings us a story of something quite strange that happened to a close friend of his, only in New York, folks. This is a story about one of my best friends, Riley Flaherty. Riley recently lost his wallet. It's a bummer, but it happens. He was at a Wilco concert at King's Theater in Brooklyn, and after the show, he took an Uber back home to Manhattan. As soon as he got home, he realized he didn't have his wallet. Riley had a trip the next morning. He really wanted the thing. We had the driver take him all the way back. He searched the theater, but nothing. Now it's three in the morning, and Riley, dejected, heads back to Manhattan. He has some cash lying around, so he's able to go on the trip. But his wallet's gone. And so he does what you do when you lose a wallet. He cancels his credit cards. He actually was waiting on a new driver's license, so he got one of those. And he bought a new wallet. End of story. Or so you'd think. Because after that, a miracle happened. Well, a sort of miracle. A very New York miracle. Two weeks after he lost his wallet, Riley received a plain white envelope in the mail. His name was written in shaky handwriting on it. And inside was his license, his credit cards, and a note. The note read, Dear Riley Flaherty, I found your wallet, and your driver's license had your address, so here's your credit cards and other important stuff. I kept the cash because I needed weed, the metro card because, well, the fare's 275 now, and the wallet because it's kind of cool. Enjoy the rest of your day. Toodles. Anonymous. I've never been so conflicted about a nice gesture, Riley told me. The cash, gone. The wallet, gone. The Metro card, gone. But two weeks later, returned in a plain white envelope, a driver's license, and his credit cards. I had already gone to get a new license, and had already gotten all my cards replaced, said Riley. So basically, it was useless to me. He did have this story, though, and no one can take that away from him. (laughs) And no, they can't. And we love doing this Days in History. As always, they're brought to us by our great friends at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, please go to hillsdale.edu. Check out all their great online courses. The C.S. Lewis, it's indispensable. And on the Day in History, we talked about this story. It was the day that Rocky debuted. And so we dug up a conversation with Sylvester Stallone, and America loves an underdog story, as you know, in Rocky. Well, this story may be the quintessential underdog movie, and how this movie came to be is itself a quintessential underdog story. Written by an unknown actor 
and the most unlikely of screenwriters. Sylvester Stallone himself tells this story. He was down and out. He had a little money in the bank, $106 to be precise. He even sold his precious dog, Butkus. But then one night, there was a big fight on TV between Chuck Wepner, a white brawler from Bayonne called the Bayonne Brawler, and Muhammad Ali. Here is Sylvester Stallone talking about how that fight changed his life. And what I saw was pretty extraordinary. I saw a man they called the Bayonne Bleeder who didn't have a chance at all against, you know, the greatest fighting machine, supposedly, that ever lived. Back, slips a punch to his left. Oh, a vicious shot to the rim of Muhammad Ali, and what a surprise! And for one brief moment, this supposed stumble bum turned out to be magnificent in the fact that he lasted and knocked the champion down. I said, boy, if this isn't a metaphor for life, his entire life crystallized at that moment. He will be remembered for all eternity, at least uh, uh, among the fight fans. He did something extraordinary. I said, now that, that is probably what I need as a catalyst for an idea. A man who's going to stand up to life and take one shot and maybe go the distance. The studios liked the script, but they had other ideas about Stallone starring in the lead part. Here, Stallone talks about how he somehow, intuitively, knew that he should not sell the script he wrote without himself in it. This is one heck of a story. Originally, when I brought the script to them, they were fairly enthusiastic about it. The one thing they were not enthusiastic about was me playing the part, and and I really can't blame them. At the time, Ryan O'Neill was a candidate, Burt Reynolds, Robert Redford, Jimmy Kahn, and they all you know, were, were at the top of their game. And so I could see it, but there was something inside of me that said, you know, this opportunity is never going to come around. And I really wasn't used to money, and I had no idea of what I would be missing. But the temptation started to come forward. First it was... Uh, Twenty-five grand and a hundred thousand dollars. I never heard of a hundred thousand because I had had like a hundred and six dollars in the bank, and like I said, I had to sell my dog, and things were not looking very, very good. Uh, my forty-dollar car had just blown up, so I was taking a bus to work, and still, it it didn't matter. I wanted to stick with it. Then it went up to one hundred fifty thousand, one hundred seventy-five thousand, it went up to two hundred fifty thousand. Now my head was starting to spin, and it went up to three hundred thirty thousand. And probably, I heard it went up to 360000 And I thought, all right, you know, you've really managed poverty very well. You've got this down to a science. You really don't need much to live on. I had, I had like, sort of figured it out. So I was not um, in, in any way uh, used to, uh, to the good life. So I thought, you know what? If I, I know in the back of my mind, if I sell this script... And it does very, very well. I'm going to jump off a building and if I'm not in it. There's no doubt about it. I'm going to leap in front of a train. I'm going to be very, very upset. So this is one of those things where you just roll the dice and you fly by the proverbial seat of your pants. Say, all right, I got to try it. I got to just do it. I may be totally wrong. And I'm going to be taking a lot of people down with me, but I just believe in it. The film, made on a budget of just over $1 million and shot in 28 days, it was a sleeper hit. It earned $225 million in global box office receipts, becoming the highest-grossing film of 1976. Rocky went on to win three Oscars, including Best Picture. This is Our American Stories. More of our best-of show after these messages.
our American stories, our best of version, and when you hear that song, you know it's final thoughts. And for all of us here, the eulogy that killed us, the eulogies that killed us last year, were all given at Arnold Palmer's funeral. It was a life so well lived, and you can always tell a life well lived by the quality and nature of the people who talk about you when you've died. And boy, did they come out for Arnold Palmer's funeral, and from every walk of life. Jack Nicholas could not make it through it. He just cried. And major CEOs, kids from Latrobe, the little town he grew up in near Pittsburgh. He never left Latrobe. He actually built a landing strip there and learned how to fly so he could get back home to his family. He didn't want the touring life to separate him from regular life. And so what we want to do is just play a couple of clips from this remarkable Final Thoughts episode that we had last year. Here is Arnold Palmer's grandson talking about Grandpa.
family, my entire family. So, anyway, time to do that and make him proud. And I told him I loved him. He told me he loved me back. And that was the last thing we said to each other, and I will cherish that for the rest of my life. Indeed. And the last person to speak, well, he didn't have words to tell either. The man, Vince Gill. And so Vince, he came up to the podium with a guitar. Because that's all he could do. And he sang his and Arnold Palmer's favorite song. They shared this song in common. And if you'll notice, he tweaked the lyrics just a little bit. Let's take a listen to Vince Gill. I'm Vince. I'm the golfer none of you have ever heard of. Um... I just want to thank the family for the gift of uh, the invitation to come here and honor an old friend. It means more to me than you'll ever know. This, um, this man was uh, my favorite person. Not my favorite golfer, but my favorite person that I ever met.
And as we learned, by the way, in this remarkable, almost three-hour-long memorial, which we could have just fed into live. By the way, in Pittsburgh, they did. I have friends there, and they said, you won't believe what you're missing. And so thanks to you all. We, we always listen to you when you send us good stuff. And what we learned about Arnold Palmer is he democratized this sport. He was a middle-class kid, and he always acted like it, and he always shook everyone's hand. And you heard it over and over again. He treated everyone the same, the president of the United States, the local auto mechanic. And that's all you can ask for in life is that kind of grace. Now another regular favorite segment, random acts of kindness. And, well, this one comes from a Chicagoan. He sent it into us. John Yast. Let's take a listen to his story. This afternoon, after running a few errands, I stopped by the Horse Thief Hollow Brewing Company in Beverly on Chicago's south side for a bowl of their really terrific chili. On being seated, I noticed a pair of Chicago cops having lunch nearby. I asked my server if the police still get meals for free, and he replied that they get a discount, but it's not free. So I told him to give the cops the usual discount, but I'd take care of the check. I assumed he'd be discreet and not finger the donor. But when the pair had finished their lunch, the female officer came over and thanked me. You have no idea how much it means. I was about to remind her that it was only 20 bucks when she continued, Everyone hates us. So if you see a cop or two having a cup of coffee or a meal, please show them that not everyone hates them. When I asked my server about revealing my identity, he said cops have a way of getting people to talk. I guess I should have seen that one coming. When I asked for my tab, the server told me, the man at the first table over there insisted on paying your bill. He wanted to buy lunch for the cops, but you beat him to it. I'm not sure if it's important to the story, but I think it might be. The man who bought my lunch is black. This is our American Stories. Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, thanks to all of you for your submissions. You send them in, we send them back. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. stories and one of our favorite favorite regular segments and you're hearing me say that a lot because we have a bunch of favorites and you think they're good too because you keep listening to them it's first job stories and first jobs matter and we love to talk about them and by the way we also love doing american dreamer stories our mario andretti if you get a chance listen to it we had him here for an hour and what a life story you can't believe it well this one's about shahid khan and he's an immigrant from pakistan who is now a billionaire and the owner of the jacksonville jaguars thanks to the opportunities this country provided. And he's since spread it to more people, that wealth. He employs 13,000 people at his company, Flexingate. Shahid arrived when he was 16 years old when he decided to attend the University of Illinois. He arrived in the United States in the middle of a blizzard. His shoes started falling apart. 
It was, you know, I'd never experienced anything like this. And uh, the feeling you get when snow kind of permeates your shoes um, and you go through the socks. I mean, I have that to this day <laughs> where I'm hardwired. I can sense something like that. But, uh, and if, you know, you're so tired, you kind of just go to sleep. And it was like, I can't believe this happened, but uh, there's got to be a pony somewhere. Yeah, there's, uh, there ha- and next day, uh, you know, when I got up, they were kind of clearing the snow, and uh, I looked at the money I had. Some of that was gone. I said, <laughs> they were hiring dishwashers uh, up the street at buck twenty an hour. And I said, you know, this can really, this is going to be great. And so I got a job, and I was washing dishes literally the next day and thinking, my God, what a great country. Uh, because I am making more than 99.9% of the people in Pakistan. And then money is not something like you're holding a melting ice cube that's kind of going away. You're able to replenish it with work. So, so within 24 hours, I mean, I had really, you know, I've kind of discovered the American dream. Indeed. And by the way, I love that he says there's got to be a pony somewhere. And by the way, he didn't say there's got to be a horsey somewhere. Sometimes in translation, when you come from another place, you just get a word wrong. And by the way, his life story and the free enterprise system, the next time you hear the word 1%, remember the world and remember what that really means. And if you're confused, call Shahid Khan. Uh, He'll straighten you up. Next story, we love to do the story of a song. And one of our favorites here, well, there are two favorites we have, Martin Scorsese. We did a great hour on him, in his own words, from the American Film Institute about his life, his story, his obsessions, sin being one of them, a lapsed Catholic. Always thinking about guilt, sin, good, and evil. Well, this song was recorded in 1969 because what you're also hearing are the sounds, the strains of Gimme Shelter. And it appeared on Rolling Stone's Let It Bleed record. Jagger told a reporter about this song. He said, quote, It was a very moody piece about the world closing in on you a bit. When it was recorded early in 1969 or something like that, it was a time of war and tension. So that's reflected in this tune. It's been used a lot to evoke natural disaster. By the way, it's been played in three Martin Scorsese movies, and always, always, disaster is looming. It turns out that when Mick and the boys were recording this song in Los Angeles, they weren't happy with the session. They knew something was missing. Mick wanted a female voice on the track. He had a few parts in mind. In came backup singer Mary Clayton. She was called late in the night and got to the studio wearing her pajamas and her hair rollers. By the way, she had no idea who the Stones were. She tells the story about that hit-making night in that L.A. studio. So it was like very late at night, and I was very, you know, a little pregnant. Had curlers and the whole thing in my head, getting ready to go to bed. And we got a call, Mary. There's a group of guys in town called Rolling, Rolling Somebodies, and they're from England, and they need somebody that will sing with them. They picked me up with silk pajamas on, a mink coat, and a Chanel scarf on my head. We said it would be wonderful if a woman sang this part about that I'd written about rape, murder, and all this. It was in the middle of the night, and, and, and we thought well, we would love to have a woman sing this part. I didn't know her, and from Adam. Then she turned up in her curlers, she was in bed, and she got out of bed. And, you know, it was a kind of raunchy part to sing. I said, what? Great murder. It's just a shot away. I started to sing, Oh, it's a shot away, it's a shot away, with Mick. 
She sings the lyrics right along me and with a lot of personality, which is what was needed. What I liked was that she could sing. She was able to be merry. She didn't have to bring it down. He said, you want to do another one? I said, sure, I'll do another one. I mean, she just did it like a couple of times, you know. So I said to myself, mm-hmm, I'm going to do another one. I'm going to blow them out of this room. <laughs> I went in again, and I did that pass on the, uh, the part that says, uh, Ray Murdoch, just a shot away. So I had to go up another octave. That's good. That's good. And we just love the stories of the song. We'll have more, three or four more, through the two hours. Last but not least, Sal Junta, the first Medal of Honor Award recipient in America was in 1863. Sal would win his for his battle in his battle and work in Afghanistan. And we love doing Medal of Honor Award recipient stories here on Our American Stories. There have been 3,515 in total since the Civil War, and that's when it started in 1863. Well, Sal, what heroism he displayed in Afghanistan. He went into enemy gunfire countless times to save one of his fellow soldiers. Well, after he received the, the award, he went on David Letterman, and Letterman, well, he had a little banter with Staff Sergeant Junta. Take a listen. None of it is me. I think training plays a, plays a big role in it because we train how we fight. This wasn't the first time we've been shot at. It was the most intense fire we've taken from the closest area. But everything we do in the military, you don't do it for yourself. You do it to the person to the left of you, to the person to the right of you. And as long as you have them on your left and right, you're not going to fail them because they won't fail you. And whatever has to happen will happen because we're going to do it together. So why does someone sign up for a job so dangerous? Here is Staff Sergeant Junta responding to David Letterman asking that question. And Salvatore, Sal's answer, well, it may surprise you. I was uh, working at Ellis Golf Course, and I was also working at Subway. Mm -hmm. And I really had no plan on going into the military. Right. I was mopping the floor one night after Subway closed, and I heard a radio commercial come on about, you know, come and see the recruiters and get a free T-shirt. Right. (laughs) I wear T-shirts, so I'll I'll take it for T-shirt. Um... I'm a sucker about uh, free stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so I went down to see the recruiter in Lindale Mall to uh, pick up my free T-shirt. And, of course, you know, they have to they give you the spiel. And part of what uh, the recruiter told me was he just kind of laid it out for me right then and there. He's like, hey, we're a country at war. We're at war in Afghanistan. We're at war in Afghanistan. Or, Afghanistan and Iraq and I'm sitting there listening to him there's parachutes hanging from the ceiling and like everyone looks all sharp in their uniform I'm like okay you know he he told me a little more and I took the free t-shirt and I left and 
probably within the next 10 days, things just kind of slowly sunk in. Like, I'm 18 years old. I'm a male. I can jump out of planes and they're going to pay me money. I can run around and shoot guns. They're going to pay me money. And for sure, I'm going to get a chance to see the world. Mm -hmm. So uh, I told my parents and I went and signed up. Still have the T-shirt? I, I got tons of them now because they're what we do PT in every morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it, the wit, the humor, and my goodness, the humility of the American GI. And if you spend time with them, and I've been lucky enough to all my life, my dad served in the Air Force, that's what it is. And again, if you ever get a chance, listen to our hour on Major Dick Winters. You want to talk about a humble life and a man who led under the most dire circumstances. So always take, take umbrage and pay respect to the men in uniform. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our special best of show. This is Our American Stories, our special best of, and we got this from a friend here in Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast. It's about an hour south of Memphis. It's just beautiful country, Ole Miss campus, SEC sports, and we love coming from small town America and coming to the rest of America. It's about time. Not everything has to come from Los Angeles and New York. And there was a local radio sports host who is bringing on one of the local stars at Ole Miss, Denzel Kemdichi, just a rock star of a player. And Richard Cross was the host, and the show was called Head to Head. And he was set to start this interview. They had him on the line, the athlete. They were about to begin. And then, well, listen to what happens next. He is on your radio this afternoon. Denzel, appreciate uh, a few minutes of your time. How are you? Denzel, you there? This is not going as well as I had hoped. I think Den he's asleep with, with the phone in his ear. Hey, Denzel, you there? Okay, this he's is... He's asleep. I don't think this I... is going to work. <laughs> no, it's not going to work. And by the way, Jesse and I were commenting because we did a lot of live talk radio. And I, of course, what, what old pros do is they keep it going. They take callers. They just let them keep it. They want to see how long it'll last. They do an over-under. They, they, they have funniest stories about when you fell asleep on people. But, well, that's not what they did. The hosts of this radio show head-to-head, -head, well, they didn't quite know how to respond. Let's take a listen to the reaction after hearing that their guest was sleeping. <sighs> Should I say it? Well, I'm not going to say it. No, don't. Just just let it go. Um, <laughs> Rhino, is he answering when we, as we call back? You're trying. One more I'm time. I'm trying, but I'm, I'm not getting anything. Okay. okay. Well, let's just move on. Um, well, look, it's early, to work okay? Out. I mean, it's it's early in the day. It's, <laughs> of course, it is 4.20 p.m. as opposed to 4.20 a.m. No. Um, all right. So... <laughs> Where do you even go with that? Ah, uh, you should have kept them on the air. Richard, call us up the next time you're in a jam. And by the way, we love the stories of songs, as I told you earlier. And here's one of our favorites. And the song is There Goes My Life. And the song writer, we're going to get to him and his partner, the singer Kenny Chesney. 
And the song, well, it raced to the top of the charts for Kenny Chesney in 2003. This isn't your usual cowboy drinking pickup truck country song, or country story for that matter. You're about to find out why. Songwriter Neil Thrasher thought he knew everything about his best friend, fellow writer Wendell Mobley. But as he pitched a song idea to Wendell, Neil would tap into a secret corner of his friend's life where an anguished memory had been bottled up for 19 years. Quote, We were writing together, Neil begins, and I came out on the front porch and said, Hey, why don't we write about a teenage boy who's got his girlfriend pregnant, but they hung in there. I even have these three words, there goes my life. It's been in my notebook for a year, he tells him. At one point, Wendell softly spoke up. He tearfully told Neil about a daughter that he'd fathered while he was still in high school. Quote, my daughter's name was Lexi, explains Wendell. We lost her when she was about a year old. Her birthday is March 17th. Though he had been Neil's friend for years, Wendell never shared this part of his life. Quote, I've been getting kind of funky around her birthday, wondering what she'd be like right now, Wendell confesses with a crack in his voice. Neil brought this song idea up at just the right time. By the way, some of us, some of us would call that a God thing. The revelation rocked Neil to the core. Quote, I had no idea about Wendell's past when we started writing the first verse on the front porch, says Neil, who's the father himself of two young daughters. I got to tell you, being friends with Wendell as long as I had and finding out something like that, man, it just got me all over. I broke down later in front of my wife. Couldn't stop crying. As the two began to dive into the song, the emotions, they just poured out like water. Quote, we cried and wrote and sang, and then we ate, and then we cried and wrote and sang some more, said Neil with a tension-releasing laugh. It just wasn't any stopping. It was almost like therapy, writing it with someone so close. Well, Kenny, Kenny Chesney recorded that song about an initially reluctant father watching his daughter grow up from infant to adult. The single took off with rocket speed, and it was number one for seven weeks on the top of the country charts. Well, a few years ago, Wendell and Kenny were doing a singer-songwriter showcase for the music royalty house ASCAP. Chesney told a story about how his manager, Buddy Cannon, got this song to him, and he remembered vividly the day he found out that this song was actually available. You see, singers know, they know, and they're hunting that great hit song. Chesney picks up the story from here. I remember sitting in Buddy Cannon's truck hearing this song and it was just, I, I couldn't believe that I was the guy that got to go out and sing this song every night for the rest of my life. And that's how much I love this song. And like Sinatra, who always thanked his writers, Kenny Chesney always, and all these country artists always give props to the writers because without the song, well, what do you have? And so at these great ASCAP conferences, the songwriter always gets to sing the first verse and chorus. And by the way, for my money, I like Wendell's version better. But you be the judge. Let's take a listen to Wendell Mobley. Only think about what I'm too young for this. Got my whole life ahead. Hell, I'm just a kid myself How am I gonna raise one? Now see, that's already a great song. 
already. All he could see were his dreams going up in smoke. So much for ditch in this town, hanging out on the coast. Oh, well, those plans are long gone. And he said, And that spontaneous applause from the audience showing their appreciation to the writer and the writer in the end sharing his life with complete strangers. Let's take a listen to Kenny Chesney who takes the second verse, hits that great bridge, and then takes it right out to the close. A couple of years I'm up on down and a few thousand diapers later That mistake you thought he made Covers up the refrigerator, oh, yeah. and he loves that little girl. Mama waiting to tuck her in as she fumbled up the steps. She smiled back at him, dragging that teddy bear sleeve. Blue eyes and bounce of curls And he smiled There goes my life There goes my future My everything I love you, Daddy, good night There goes my Crown be closed, fifteen pairs of shoes, and his American Express. He checked the old slam the hood, said you're good to go. She hugged them both and headed off to the west coast. And there you have it, art reflecting life, life reflecting art. The first chorus, first chorus, a young father's resignation and regret. The second chorus, a father's joy, a little girl running up a steroid. Third chorus, sadness and joy, as little girl's all grown up. She's heading out on her own. Absolutely beautiful. The story behind the story of There Goes My Life 
here on Our American Stories. All he could think about was I'm too young for this Got my whole life ahead Hell, I'm just a kid myself How am I gonna raise one? All he could see were his dreams This is Our American Stories, and our second hour of our best of, a special best of. And again, we love starting off the hours with a little lightness. And one of our favorite segments here are just random thoughts from Jesse that we like to call Shower Thoughts. Shower Thoughts. The first guy that died with life insurance never knew if it was a scam. As a teenager, I was told not to trust anyone on the internet and not to be stupid online. Now, I'm telling my parents the same things. (laughs) USB sounds like a backup plan in case the USA fails. It's pretty dumb that I get a new driver's license every four years and it's made out of hard plastic. And I'm supposed to have my social security card for life and it's made out of paper. There's enough apps for finding friends, lovers, and soulmates. I want an app that helps me find my arch enemy. <laughs> Using your old laptop to research buying a new one is like asking it to dig its own grave. Girl Scouts is basically a brand name cookie company that gets away with child labor. <laughs> when I unsubscribe from a newsletter and get an email confirming that I've been unsubscribed, it feels like they needed to be the one to say the last word in an argument. Candlelight dinners weren't very special before the light bulb was invented. As an adult, I'm not eating nearly as much ice cream as 10-year-old me thought I would. My dog keeps bringing me the same toy. I wonder if that's his favorite toy or if he thinks it's my favorite toy. Great minds discuss ideas. Average minds discuss events. Small minds discuss people is a quote that discusses people. In FBI shows, cops are incompetent, unskilled simpletons who just get in the way. In cop shows, the FBI are bureaucratic, incompetent simpletons who just get in the way. The person who would proofread Hitler's speeches was a real-life grammar Nazi. (laughs) Casinos should let people play Monopoly with real money. Nothing says top of the food chain like squid ink calamari pasta. You're eating another animal and seasoning it with its own defense mechanism. At age 30, you've spent an entire month having birthdays over your lifetime. In a 500-day period, I could theoretically meet someone, get married, have a baby, and get divorced, and yet I'd still be using the same box of Q-tips. 
Shower thoughts. Oh. And from the ridiculous to the sublime, we bring you the story of an anonymous mother from Wisconsin. Her written piece was called A Letter to My Heroin Addict Daughter. And on this show, we talk about the problems that Americans have an opioid addiction, heroin addiction. It's out of control. We've never seen anything like it. And it's taking out families everywhere. And I love what Tennessee Williams at his funeral had said and had written about art. He had said, art makes us feel all less alone. And that's the power of storytelling. Let's take a listen to this anonymous mother and her story and her plea to her daughter. Dear daughter, I have lost you, gone as the baby girl I held in my arms while whispering words of adoration, gone as the little girl whose fingernails I painted a soft, innocent pink while we sang, I love you, you love me. Gone for now are the dreams I had for your life as I watched you walk into your kindergarten room on that first day of school. Dashed are the hopes that swelled up in my heart when I saw you sing in your school's choral concerts as you went out on your first date, as you walked down the aisle with your high school diploma in hand. How could I fathom I was watching you march toward the devastation called addiction? I shared in your excitement as you, with a gleam in your eyes, told me about the man that wanted to date you. This could be the one, Mom, you said. He was the one, the one who injected a vein in your arm with your first dose of heroin. How many times he did after that, I don't know, but you were hooked. We soon discovered it wasn't just heroin. You relied on meth and prescription pills to numb your insecurities and life's pain. I thought I could fix it all. I thought it would be simple. I had no idea what our family was up against. I eventually found you and managed to get you into treatment, thinking six weeks in rehab would bring you back. But I was wrong. You always went back to him, back to the needles, spoons, fine white powder, and brown liquid in your veins. The battle to get you back is far from over. It's clear to see how much the drugs have altered your old persona and brain, and I'm now dealing with a new person. Losing you to the drugs has been like experiencing a death. The grief has been overwhelming. I tell you this, but you look at me expressionless, worried about your next hit. If I could sit by you while you're using, I would tell you what each syringe does. This dose will send your mother into despair and fits of sobbing. Your next hit will throw your father to his knees as he cries out in pain, What did I do wrong? The next will saturate your little brother's pillows with tears of anguish, fear, and disappointment. And the next will rock your little sister's world as her young brain tries to comprehend the concept of addiction. When I do get to see you, I hold you and close my eyes as I give you a kiss. For a few seconds, I feel like I'm once again kissing my little girl's smooth, soft cheek, and there is hope. But when I let go, I look into an addict's eyes, and we both know it's all changed. I don't know where it will go from here. I see you taking promising steps forward, then leaps backward. Our family's shock and sorrow have evolved into a fight to keep you off the streets and breathing. We have been dealt a devastating hand that we will never understand. But until the day I die, I will fight to get you back and live the life I dreamed for you as you were growing up. I love you. You love me. Forever, my baby, you'll be. And thank you so much for doing that. That is not an easy thing to write. 
let alone an easy thing to record. For anyone who's going through the throes of addiction in the family, our prayers here at Our American Stories go out to you. And send your stories to us, ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Our American Stories. Our best of continues. We'll go a little lighter. Billy Joel and his story to his daughter after these messages. stories a special best of and we love talking about work entrepreneurship and taking care of each other and this next story combines all three things and a very special coffee shop biddy and bo's coffee shop in wilmington north carolina is run entirely by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who might otherwise not have a choice or chance to work the founder's name Amy Wright, who joined us earlier this year to talk about what moved her to do such a, well, such a crazy thing, some would think. Such a beautiful thing. It turns out she had a personal experience with developmental disabilities with her own children. Not once with her first son, Bo, who was diagnosed with Down syndrome, but twice. Because Biddy was born with Down syndrome as well. Here, Amy talked about her friend's reaction and family reaction. To this news. Looking back, I think there were a lot of friends um, that kind of grieved as Bo was born, and there was a lot of sadness and a lot of um, condolences, which, looking back again, is kind of is ridiculous. But people around us didn't know Down syndrome either, and I think they were grieving the life that they thought we weren't going to have, yep. as we did for a little while. But just any time you spend time with Bo and Biddy, even as an infant, all of a sudden your perspective changes and you realize that it doesn't matter what the diagnosis is. You know, this this child is just created perfectly and beautifully, and um, there's so much to celebrate. We have found that anybody who spends time with our family, their hearts are changed. And so, you know, and I guess kind of leading to why we opened Biddy and Bo's Coffee Shop, we wanted to multiply that feeling. We wanted other people to experience not only our kids, but everybody else that has an intellectual disability so that someday when that parent welcomes their baby into the world and the doctor comes in and says they have Down syndrome, that they don't have that reaction Ben and I had when we welcomed Bo because they know what Down syndrome is. They've been to Biddy and Bo's Coffee. They've met somebody there that works um, that has just opened their eyes to a whole new world. Um, and so that that's kind of our greatest motivator in, in creating this coffee shop is changing the way people feel about people with disabilities. And what a beautiful thing. It's a ministry of sorts, as you can tell, for Amy. And by the way, just some numbers and some statistics. 
70 to 85% of intellectually disabled Americans are unemployed. 67% of American children diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted. So who runs this coffee shop and how? Let's take a listen. The, the place is completely run by people with intellectual disabilities. So we have employees that have autism, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. We have all, you know, all kinds of diagnoses. But they are so capable and they are hardworking and they have learned their jobs so thoroughly that they run this shop completely self-sufficiently. So someone will take somebody's order. Somebody else will make the beverages. Somebody else will um, call out the order when it's ready or deliver it to the table. Um, somebody might be greeting people at the door. But um, they are a well-oiled machine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have tons of regular customers that come in and have formed relationships with our team. Um, you know, lots of hugs and high fives all the time. But then we also have this interesting phenomenon of people that are traveling from all over the country, some from outside our country, to come experience what's going on here because it's really special. That's always the thrill for our team, too, to see, you know, how people, you know, maybe for the first time in their lives, not only are they being treated with respect, but they're, they're being treated like celebrities, you know, like, they, <laughs> like heroes. And, yeah. uh, you know, they, people recognize them. They come in with their cameras and they want to get pictures and autographs with our team. It is amazing how that changes the way somebody feels about themselves when they feel valued. We asked Amy to talk to parents who are about to give birth to a child they know has an intellectual disability or developmental disability. I just would say that, you know, we all have obstacles. We know as life goes on that things can happen to us and, and change us, whether that is physically or emotionally or spiritually, and it, it will come when you least expect it. The thing about getting a diagnosis when your child is born is that you're kind of handed that playing card and, and you know what you're up against. But the reality is, you know, I have all kinds of obstacles I face with my teenage daughters that don't have intellectual disabilities, but there are challenges we face. Bo and Biddy, I kind of knew because with Down syndrome, I knew what some more specific challenges would be, but it, they're no different than any other child that, that you raise. You're going to face moments when things are tough. You're going to face all kinds of celebrations, but, you know, the fact that God created each of us perfectly and wonderfully, and there is, he doesn't make mistakes. No, he doesn't, and if you're ambling down 95, up and down that corridor, and you find yourself going through North Carolina, stop in at Bowen Biddy's Coffee Shop in Wilmington. And now, Billy Joel, well, he conducts a master class periodically. He'll go to a college, and they'll talk about songwriting, the business of songwriting, the art of songwriting. In this particular case, Billy Joel gets asked a question by a woman in the audience about her favorite song, and it's Lullaby. And Billy Joel, well, he's taken aback, I think. And he talks about how he wrote this song for his little girl during a moment of personal strife and crisis. All right, so I had this, 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 uh, this melody. Which 
which is how I write songs. I, I wrote the music first. She goes, Daddy, what happens when you die? So I said, oh, man. But also, this was during a time when her mom and I were splitting up. So this was like a double-pronged thing, like, Daddy, you're going to leave me. And I said, I'll never leave you. I'll, I'll ne I will never leave you. I'll never go away. I will never, never, ever leave you. He's really trying to solve a problem. That's what brings him to this song. So let's go a little bit further down in this master class. Here's Billy Joel again. Good night, my angel. Time to close your eyes. Save these questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you. And you should always know. And there you have it, Billy Joel answering his little girl's question with a song. He continues through the second verse, and as he gets through the end, he has a, almost a breakdown. He starts to cry. He starts to pull away from the microphone. It's so emotional. It's so intimate. He never gives this explanation of the song when he's at Madison Square Garden. Well, he comes back to the keyboards and shares the stunning final verse of this song again for his little girl. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always be a part of me Someday we'll all be gone But lullabies go on and on They never die That's how you and I will be. And there you have it, Billy Joel singing a song to his little girl. And that last verse, his little girl singing that same song to her little girl. Billy Joel's story, a part of our American stories. Our best of continues after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, a special best of episode. And now we want to bring you the story of Louis Zamperini. And you may know the story. Captured by the Japanese, tortured, beaten. If you've read Laura Hillenbrand's book, you know the whole story. By the way, Laura also wrote Seabiscuit. She loves writing about wounded things that get healed. Well, Angelina Jolie made the movie, and she left out some important parts. Because when Louis comes back, some remarkable things happen in his life. He comes back, and he's wounded, and he's angry. I mean, imagine you've been tortured, so he, you have every right to be bitter. He, he has problems with his marriage. His wife's about to divorce him because he's hitting her. He's screaming at her. His kids are just scattered. Well, this event in his life changed everything, and it was not in Angelina's version of Laura's book. But the nightmares started in prison because every day when he would punish me, I'd clench my fist. And he knew I wanted to hit him. And he said, if I draw my sword, I must use it. So I had nightmares there all the way home. And there was never a night I didn't dream about getting this guy. And uh, so, but when I woke up in a cold sweat uh, with my hand around my wife's throat, that really scared me. And of course, it scared her. (laughs) And, And then she, we were... A young couple in the apartment came to uh, our apartment and knocked on the door and started telling us about a young evangelist coming to L.A. And he started to quote scripture. And boy, that, that hit me. I, I said, hey, I'm out of here. And my, my wife listened. And when Billy came, they talked her into going down with them. And she, in the meantime, she had already filed for a divorce. And then uh, but when she came home and tried to get me to go down, I fought her. Uh, But then she said something that softened me up. She said, because of my conversion, I'm not going to get a divorce. Well, that really softened me up a bit. And so she was able to persuade me to go down here, Billy. But then again, he was quoting scripture, and that really (laughs) hit me between the eyes. And I said, I don't need anybody to tell me I'm a sinner. I know I am. And so I got mad, pulled her on home. Uh, But uh, the next day, she's all over me again. And and I said, okay, okay, I'll go back on one condition. When he says every head bowed and every eye closed, we're out. And so back again we went, and Billy's finishing the sermon. And I said, let's go. And then he said something like, um, when people come to the end of their rope and they have no else to turn, they turn to God. And I thought, yeah, that's what I did. And I'd, on the raft and prison camp, all the prisoners were praying about the same prayer, get me home alive to my family and I'll seek you and serve you. Well, he got me home alive and I didn't keep my promise and that really hit me between the eyes. So instead of leaving the tent, I went back to the prayer room and made a confession of my faith in Christ. And that Billy, by the way, was Billy Graham. That other, that man he was talking about was a man called the bird, the guy who tortured him. And ultimately, well, Louis had a challenge before him the challenge to forgive that man who tortured him and all the others. Louis continued this compelling story, again left out of Angelina Jolie's version of Unbroken, and here Louis talks about the miracles that happened in his life. I have received Christ as my Savior. I knew while I was still on my knees that I was a different person, and I didn't know what happened. And then later, of course, as I began to study the Scriptures, I realized that uh, when I invited Christ into my life, and therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new person. That was the answer. But at that time, I didn't know it. I just knew something phenomenal happened. And I had no, not the slightest hate for the bird anymore. I loved everybody. And uh, so the first miracle was uh, uh, not having the nightmares. 
or I should say my conversion, and then having nightmares, and then the third miracle was uh, the Bible, I could never understand it. In the Pacific, they gave us olive drab Bibles, and nobody could understand it, so we just threw it in our footlocker. So I took uh, the, my, my olive drab New Testament, I walked up into the Hollywood Park, and I started to read it, and now it made sense. And uh, when I got to the, uh, the crucifixion on the cross and uh, the treatment that uh, God the Son went through, the, and the torture and the humiliation, uh, I started to cry. I never cried in my life, but uh, nobody could make me cry as a kid. I was just defiant, but this did it. If it hadn't been for the war or Watanabe and the post-traumatic stress, that's what drove me to Christ. When I got on my knees and accepted Christ, what a relief to know that I'd passed from one life into another. You know, one of his last interviews with, was with you, Hewitt, and you had asked him, Louis, what were the big events in your life? And he said there were two. I crashed into an ocean, and I crashed into Jesus Christ. And so when Angelina Jolie leaves out the Billy Graham part, well, it's just, it's unforgivable, and I'm a Christian. The movie should have been called Broken. Not unbroken, because what unbroke him was the part she left out. And last but not least, one of our favorite stories of the year came from Debbie Bisden. And somehow Jesse found this. He was surfing the web on an online women's magazine. And Jesse, I'm not sure. Uh, no, I think my wife found it. Uh, yeah, right, right. Your wife found it. No, Jesse, with the therapist bills, you can put them on us. It's a part of the basic medical coverage. Uh, and so, Debbie, well, the title of the piece, I was a little resident, reticent at first to do this story. The title is Stop Being a Butthole Wife. Stop being a butthole wife. No, I'm serious. End it. Let's start with the laundry angst. I get it. The guy can't find the hamper. It's maddening. It's insanity. The day my husband left earth for heaven, all of my marriage problems vanished. There was no one to fuss at, negotiate with, or play possum at bedtime. You know, when you pretend you're asleep to bypass sex. I wanted a perfect husband who acted how I wanted, and if that didn't happen, well, butthole wife was in full effect. If only he could understand how right I was and how wrong he'd always be, I needed to instruct him, question him, and remind him of his shortcomings. The reality is, I wasn't helping him or our marriage. By pointing out each fault, I was poisoning the relationship. Oh, it was still a good marriage, and we deeply loved each other, but it was not what it could have been, and now it was too late. Days after his funeral, I stared at our dirty clothes basket that sat atop our dryer, knowing his clothes were inside. I sighed so deeply. Before me was the last load of laundry I would ever wash for that sweet man. There would be no more dirty socks to pick up around the house. Ever. A week before, I would have rolled my eyes at that basket. But now, it held priceless treasures. I waited weeks to wash those clothes. My heart ached for dirty socks to once more be a part of my days. And God later gave me a special gift. 
He has allowed me to love again, to wear a second wedding dress, and to be a better wife. I now strive to hug more and nag less. My goal is to make him feel respected, important, valued. Recently, I walked into the master bedroom and I stopped, nearly bursting into tears. I saw a pile of dirty clothes that my new husband had abandoned on the floor. As I stared at the pile, I smiled. I knew he had hurried to change out of work clothes into comfy clothes so he could spend more time with his new family. He had chosen what is more important. I happily scooped the treasures into my arms and carried them to the washing machine. I get to do this. I get to serve. I get to live with a wonderful man who ditches laundry for people. Let us not become weary in doing good. Galatians six nine. And thanks so much for that, Debbie, and for all the guys listening. Thank you too. And it's just beautiful. And we try periodically to give you some context in your lives and to lift your spirits. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling, no opinion. This is Our American Stories. Our best of continues. You won't believe the Robert Plant story we're about to tell you. You don't know it, but you'll like it. Our American Stories, our final segment and our special best of two hours. We love doing segments about Americana, about the hobbies and pastimes that Americans have. And we spent an hour looking at the lives of the people who dress up and become our favorite sports mascots. We talked to the original Philly fanatic, David Raymond, about the Mascot Hall of Fame that he was building. We also talked with Robert Bowden about his 20-year career as Clutch the Rocket Bear And that's, of course, the mascot for the NBA's Houston Rockets. Here's Robert telling us one of the craziest things that ever happened to him as a mascot. I've been humped by Jack Nicholson. Um, My first year on the job, we just won two championships. Jack Nicholson's sitting courtside next to our owner. I go to do this routine where I act like I'm sitting on his lap and uh, bouncing up and down on his knee like a little eight-year-old or like a little four-year-old child would. What I don't realize is all of a sudden the whole crowd laughs hysterically. <laughs> a big, huge guffaw. And I'm like kind of scratching my head like, oh, this is funny, but it's not that funny. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, what he had done, and the cameraman's right there, is he wraps his one arm around the waist of the bear, which is a 92-inch waist, and it's mostly dead space and padding in there. So I don't feel it. And he looks next door at the camera and he acts like he's thrusting into the backside of the costume. And I don't feel it because there's just hula hoops in there that give it shape. And I'm not putting any pressure on his knees. I just kind of squat, making it look like I'm sitting on him so I don't hurt anybody. And then, of course, I finish the routine out by jumping up, bowing down to him and kissing his feet because he's a big celebrity. But what it looks like is that he you know, kind of humped me from behind and then I thank him for it. By the way, it's good that you didn't feel it, is all I can say. 
Well, coming up here, the story of Kitty Sargent. Joey Cortez did some great work for us as an intern, Alex's brother, and then he went back to school at Boston College. While reading the B.C. student newspaper, The Gavel, he came across a story by a young woman named Kitty Sargent. Well, she's college class of 2016. She takes us on a journey of self-doubt and self-discovery. How did this self-described, awkward, insecure girl become a happy and confident young woman? I walked into my seventh grade math class the day after I got a haircut, feeling like a million bucks. My hair was straight and shiny, and my smile stretched from ear to ear. I felt pretty. Beautiful, even. That's saying a lot for an awkward seventh grader. But suddenly, a voice cut through the happiness I was feeling. This was girl Gabrielle. Wow, Kitty. If only you got contacts, then you'd actually be pretty. Wait. So I wasn't pretty? But I could be? I had gotten glasses in fifth grade and wore them every day for the next ten years. Pretty girls weren't supposed to wear glasses. It didn't bother me as much in high school, but that changed once I got to BC. My insecurities about my glasses was compounded by a host of other body images and appearance-based concerns. Never before had I been around so many people who cared so much about what they looked like. At the end of my freshman year, I found a lump in my throat that was growing quickly. It was a thyroid nodule, and it continued to grow all throughout my first semester of sophomore year. The watch and see method led to a decision to remove the nodule in March of my sophomore year. But I knew about the surgery in January, which led to two months of agonizing waiting. It was in this two-month window that I started a gratitude practice. I needed to find a silver lining to come to terms with the lump in my throat, so I hoped that practicing gratitude would help me to do so. And one morning during my reflection, a new thought popped into my head. I was grateful for my body because it lets me run and jump and sing and hug. It lets me explore the world and learn new things. In that moment, I wasn't grateful for how my body looked, but for what it did. That morning was the first morning in many years that I liked my body. The surgery came and went. I was back at school uh, a week later when my surgeon called. It wasn't just a lump. It was cancer. I was shocked. It wasn't supposed to be cancerous. I wasn't supposed to get cancer, especially as a sophomore in college. My body didn't love me, and I didn't love my body. But then there was that nagging gratitude practice where I discovered all these great things that I adored about what my body could do. As my treatment ran its course over the next few months, I found the chance to marvel at modern medicine. A hundred years ago, I probably would have died. But with the aid of medical treatment, my body found the strength to fight back. I was declared cancer-free on July 1st, 2014. I was free to be me again, and not just a girl with cancer. Somehow, by getting sick, by being pushed so far into loathing my body and what it had, quote, done to me, I stopped hating my body. Now, when I eat healthy foods, it's to nourish my body so it can perform its very best not because I'm counting calories. When I work out, it's not to lose weight. It's just nice to feel strong after feeling so weak in the past. The more I forced myself to love my body, the less forced it felt. The more I forced myself to act confident, the less it felt like an act. 
I've beaten cancer. The positives start to outweigh the negatives, and those critical voices seem to get a little quieter each time. And thank you for that, Kitty. And our last segment, and our favorite of the year, the story of an artist, Robert Plant, his second American rebirth. He was the front man of one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time, Led Zeppelin. His name, well, we just said it, and it's Robert Plant. He and his British mates took America by storm in the late 60s through to the end of the 70s. Inspired by the blues musicians of the Mississippi Delta, they reinvented and repackaged it as only they could, and it turned into some of the most explosive music ever recorded. They made only eight albums, back when people actually recorded albums, and sold 200-plus million records. That's right, 200 million And then tragedy struck the band. In 1977, Plant's five-year-old son died. A stomach virus turned into something much worse. The seeds of a Zeppelin breakup were sown. And then in 1980, drummer John Bonham died, and with him, Led Zeppelin. There was no replacing Bonham. And as Robert Plant later explained, he didn't want to be the lead singer of a Led Zeppelin cover band the rest of his life. He struggled. He tried new things. Some worked. Some didn't. And then he returned to a very different kind of American roots music for his rebirth. He returned to Nashville, to the Smoky Mountains, and to the music of Appalachia, and the old songs of those hill people. I found that there was more stuff underneath the covers Mm. going on, and it was still coming from Ireland and and places in Tennessee and in the mountains where people just hadn't moved on. Families lived there for five generations without shifting from one township, so the music followed down through the families, and we got really old songs there. In 2010, Plant, along with the Band of Joy, he'd won a Grammy with Alison Krauss just a year or two before, performed live for the BBC, and closed out their show with this song, one you wouldn't expect from the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. And as it turns out, this is a song Plant had wanted to sing for a very, very long time. I finally got my way after uh, so many thousands of years of saying, why don't you finish the show with a song that says everything and... uh, Tried to sell the idea to a few people down the line, but we've got it now, so. Lay down, my dear sister, won't you lay and take your rest? Won't you lay your head upon my Savior's breast? But I love you, but Jesus loves you the best, and I bid you good night, good night. Good night. Oh, I bid you good night. Good night. Good night. One of these mornings, bright and early and fine. Good night. Good night. That was Plant in the first verse, singing along with some of the best Nashville voices. And a little bit later, the curtain pulls back and a gospel choir appears. And this is how the concert closed out. I was walking in Jerusalem just like John. Good night, good night. I was walking in Jerusalem just like John. Good night, good night. Good night. Good night. 
It was a song he'd wanted to sing his whole life, he said. And he didn't. Until then. Sometimes you need to be in your 50s, in your 60s, to get comfortable in your own skin. We tried to find out who the writer of that song was. We couldn't. It was like so many of those old gospel traditional songs just passed through from generation to generation. No authorship required when celebrating the Lord. Then people didn't want to claim authorship. This is Lee Habib, the story of Robert Plant utterly connected to the American story. This is Our American Stories. Stories. 